when we think of decolonization, we, we are also thinking about we need to make space for other voices to be heard. And making space with need, uh, moving, you know, some people are going to have to move. Hello. And welcome to Inside Cambridge, a podcast that brings you inside Cambridge with news, views and insight from world experts. This episode, we're discussing efforts to decolonize the curriculum, which demand a shakeup of how we teach, learn and of how we in the West think of ourselves and our place in the world. Universities around the world, including Cambridge, are being critiqued by those who work and study at them. The universities are accused of promoting a Euro and white centric view of the world, which is too narrow, one sided and which helps to reproduce exploitative relationships between ex-colonial powers in their former colonies. You heard there from Dr Monica Moreno-Figueroa on the need to change who teaches at universities as part of decolonising the curriculum. This episode looks at what the decolonisers want and why. But first, I spoke to Professor Saul Dubot from the History Faculty to hear about the movement which sparked it all off, Roads Must Form, and its birthplace, South Africa. Well, I was fortunate to be in Johannesburg just as the um, it started in Cape Town first, of course, with the toppling of Rhodes' statue. I was in Johannesburg um, at the University of Witwatersrand as the barriers came down and students and crowds converged. It was very exciting. It was a real sense of openness. Uh, it was not clear at the time quite what the forces were. Um, to some extent, it was associated um, with well, with groupings who were not just students, um, who were deliberately not making their demands clear. And that was part of the idea, I suppose, of leaderless, um, leaderless resistance. Uh, the EFF, uh, economic freedom fighters, were in the background. So it was very exciting. I found it at the time, in the first few days, uh, not threatening at all. I was uh, actually giving a paper, a seminar, research paper, um, on about race, just as the sort of voices came up, um, the marching voices came up from the streets. Things turned rather um, sort of nastier, and there was um, threats of violence and so forth. And then I went back down to Cape Town. Uh, we had a period of time at the University of Stellenbosch, which is one of the old Afrikaner sort of citadels of learning. And uh, there, the, the fallist movement took a very different form. It was about access by black students teaching in Afrikaans or English what the vernacular was. And in Cape Town too, uh, things were shifting because the, the toppling of roads was not really, I think, principally about roads. It was a whole range of factors. It was about transformation of the university, about Africanization, about intersectionality, about gender. There was a whole range of issues and roads was a kind of lightning rod. And in fact, I've never been persuaded that the fallist movement was really and is really about roads. But what about the decolonized movement which came from Roads Must Fall? What does it want here in Cambridge? Yeah, I think I think it's like we want to do these multiple tasks when we think of decolonizing. Monica again from the sociology department. Uh, to think about how we re re well not rewrite but well maybe rewrite you know and rethink how is it that we know what we know where does those directions come and then how can we um rethink again and in that rethinking be very critical about what we have learned so far so it's not just adding adding more but questioning from the core 
what is our lens through which we understand the world. And I think that's quite central. The other aspect as well is uh, that accompanies that would be, or the follow-up would be then decentering, which would mean to put the center somewhere else, to what would it mean to understand the world if we put at the center indigenous women in, from Latin America? What would the world look like? How would we and then understand social, social relations and social problems from different perspectives? So I think that's what we, we're trying to do. So bring different approaches to, like all these different threats together. Looking at the lens through which we look at the world, Decentering sounds hard to do, but Monica's colleague, Dr. Ali Meji, explains why he thinks it's worth doing. I think that it um, cuts to issues of knowledge, so epistemology and, and being ontology. If you think about um, what decolonizing is really about, it's about kind of a critique of the geopolitics of knowledge. So if you think about, for example, so we could talk about it in terms of sociology, if you think about theories or socio sociological theories as maps, um, that's really useful because, you know, if you were going to London, you could have a map of the underground if you wanted to get around via the underground. You could have a map of the roads, which would be useful if you were driving around, or you could have a map of the main attractions if you wanted to walk around and go to all of this and, and if you wanted to go sightseeing. Now, none of these maps from our perspective are more true than the other or better than the other. They're just more appropriate for particular things. But can you imagine a circumstance where someone says the map of the underground is the map of London and it's the only true map, or maybe even it's the best map of London? For us, that doesn't really make sense, but that's kind of how um, Eurocentric thinking plays out, is it provides a particular map of the world, a map that has significant problems in terms of what it leaves out in its vision of, of, the, um, of the world. But it's claiming that it's the map. It's the way to look at the world. So I think that decolonizing is kind of much more about lived experience and it's much more to do with that critique of how come all of this knowledge is presenting itself as universal, even though it's leaving out all of the things. So let's take Marx, because Marx always comes up in these kinds of discussions. Quite often Marx would talk about, you know, the move um, towards capitalism and that kind of period of European modernity as being a world historical process, right? But largely when he's analyzing modernity and when he's analyzing industrialization, when he's analyzing Western European capitalism in the 18th to 19th centuries, he's not really looking at how it were, how the European um, industrialization was itself fueled by their colonial expeditions, right? And by their empires and by their colonial conquests. And this is why I said Marx, because Marx is a really good example of this. By accusing certain knowledges of being Eurocentric, we're not saying they're false. So does Marx give an accurate description of how the bourgeoisie um, exploits the working class in Manchester's factories? Yeah, he does. You know, it's a useful theory for thinking about that particular relation. Does Marx give enough understanding of imperialism or colonialism? No. So, you know, his theory does something, but it doesn't do everything. Our problem is when theories start claiming that they can do everything. So... Can you infer from that that decolonization is primarily about adding people to reading lists then, to fill in the gaps on the map? It's not just adding. It's not an additive. It's a complete, as Monica said, a complete rethinking. It's a, it's a starting a new project in a sense, starting anew from people that have already existed. Because as Sul and then Ening Chang, a recently graduated politics student, explain, it's perfectly possible to add to reading lists without really questioning the Eurocentric idea. 
without really looking at the lens through which we understand the world. I'm the subject convener of world history and that has its own very interesting history because it goes back if you like at least 50 years to the expansion of the curriculum at the time in terms of arguing that the history of imperialism or what was then called you know um, the expansion of Europe was a very important part of world history and that it wasn't being given full account by people who um, or by academics who who thought that um, that extra-European history was really secondary, uh, that the real story of history was about Britain and Europe and North America. Um, one of the kind of um, sponsors, if you like, inadvertent sponsors of modern African history in the 1960s was the reaction against the historian Hugh Trevor Roper, who said that there really couldn't be such a thing as African history because Africa was just the story of meaningless gyrations uh, of tribes, that it didn't actually have a history. Of course, Hegel said the same. So those early pioneers who began to think about uh, the expansion of Europe were also, in a sense, transforming the curriculum. Um, but it was doing so, um, as you can see, with a very strong emphasis on European expansion and agency. So it's not just a matter of taking a reading list that is currently populated by Western political thinkers and throwing a few non-Western thinkers in to say that we've represented a wider variety of viewpoints. Rather, uh, because what that does is it still it still leaves the 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 preeminent, the prevailing Western viewpoint intact. When what you want to do is to critically revise what you think Western political philosophy is looking at, for example, how colonial encounters shaped this thing called Western political philosophy such that this is not political philosophy formed in the West as like a hermetically sealed object. You want to look at other ways of thinking, other people, other parts of the world, other traditions of thought, other strategies of thought, and put them in dialogue to see how you rethink what the enterprise of, uh, of political philosophy is on the whole. So every, everyone is transformed in the process in that sense, and it's not, just, it's not just an additive process. During her time here, Yining Chang was heavily involved in the campaign to decolonize the politics department. Does she have a practical example of where simply adding hasn't gone far enough? So I think one pretty obvious thing is um, how Gandhi, for example, is taught. Because Gandhi, at some point in recent years, was added to the Poan syllabus for first-year undergrads. So Gandhi on that course is often taught as a thinker offering a critique of the West from outside the West. He is often presented as though he is drawing on traditions of thought that are entirely unfamiliar to quote unquote us in the West because it's so, you know, the words that are used to describe um, the things that he, that he thought are words like life force, soul force. They convey a certain sort of, a certain sense of irrationality about Gandhi's, about the nature of Gandhi's political thinking. And as a result, Gandhi is Rather markedly, I, I really think, cast as 
unfamiliar and to some extent not understandable and offering something that stands outside of of political theory properly conceived so how would what what would that what would that teaching what would that learning look like if if we by decolonizing it and decolonizing ourselves so one of the things and this this is a really tricky question i don't think i'm you know i i think it would be i would be wrong to try to offer some like obvious answers i think one way that people have tried to do that is to say well if you look at Gandhi, he we can understand him using the same categories that we are familiar with using within political theory as as we usually do it um and that would make Gandhi understandable within the bounds of political theory and make him a figure of political theory in that sense. This position, I think, comes with its own tensions and its own problems, but it's one way to rethink how we do political theory. Another way, I think, is to recognize that this historical encounter of the colonizer and the colonized transformed both the colonizer and the colonized. So to understand Gandhi as drawing on traditional sources of thought that have nothing to do with Western political philosophy is to suggest that somehow some pre-modern form of Indian politics and Indian traditions of thinking was preserved wholesale even after the colonial encounter, which I think is um, a historically untenable viewpoint. And to also suggest that Western political theory was untouched by the colonial encounter. Through that interaction, conceptual vocabularies that developed in, uh, in, in, in Britain, for instance, were brought over to the Indian context and it was interpreted and repurposed and innovated upon and rethought in the Indian context. And likewise, um, colonial officials who were governing places like India formed their own ideas about like what you know, political authority, for instance, consists of. And that idea, those ideas also traveled back um, into the West and influenced the way people then proceeded to think about um, things like political legitimacy and political authority. And you can see that in a lot of, for, for instance, British um, political thought in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries. People like Edmund Burke, for instance, who were thinking about trusteeship when he was thinking about metropolitan and colonial sovereignty, things like that. Taking account of colonial legacies and bringing canonical thinkers into dialogue with thinkers from outside the Western world shouldn't be all that controversial and isn't so revolutionary, as Ali explains. It's a paradox because so much of the social sciences, arts and humanities is based on the point that knowledge is socially constructed, right? Knowledge is always produced from a particular standpoint, from a particular historical period and from particular power relations. (laughs) What we're doing in this is literally just applying that central principle of the social sciences, arts and humanities to the disciplines um, itself. So for us, sociology, but for other people, different disciplines. But if that's all it's about, the movement to decolonize the curriculum can, for one reason or another, and for better or worse, and in certain very specific cases, come across as more interested in restricting debate than opening it up. Saul from the history faculty explains how. You can see this in the the broader intellectual uh, climate, uh, discussions of certain discussions of whiteness. Um, um, you know, there is a there is a reaction against that. There are lots of questions being asked about you know, whether certain people with certain colors or certain uh, genders have the right to be talking about particular issues. 
And um, there is a sense in some of that, uh, probably also in uh, deplatforming and so forth, of um, a certain kind of censoriousness and restriction of, of debate. But how do discussions about race relate to decolonizing the curriculum? And is race a useful category to think about in academia anyway? Apart from the colour of my skin, what do I, as a white Cambridge student, have in common with, say, a white inhabitant of a Johannesburg slum? I think that when it comes to experiences of racialization, I, I think that that is an experience that does translate somewhat. That's Dr. Tanisha Spratt, who helped set up the decolonised sociology group when she was at Cambridge and now researches the sociology of health. I mean, there are lots of experiences. I grew up very middle class. I am black, but I grew up very middle class. And there are things that I don't know about people that grew up black and working class. But there is a commonality, I think, a lot of the time in terms of understanding experiences of racialization. What Decolonize is talking more about is the experiential differences in how people approach things. I mean, if a person... It's not so much about that person being white as in looking white and having phenotypic phenotypical features that are associated with whiteness. It's looking at what their experiences are and what they can say about the like what white social theorists can say about the experiences of, say, African-Americans and thinking, is that the best? Is that better than a, than using black social theorists to talk about black experiences that they probably have? It's, it's an experiential difference. It's not so much about skin colour. But you don't have to be what you want to research, right? I think that's true. I mean, certainly in my own PhD research, I researched two chronic illnesses, neither of which I have, and wrote my PhD about it. I don't think that you have to have the experiences of the people that you're researching necessarily, but I think it's important when you're analysing your data and when you're thinking about it and talking to people to think more broadly about experiences that people have reported that you don't have. So to include authors of colour and to think about how different people are relating to these experiences that you don't necessarily know. I don't think it's the case that you just can't study it. I just think that you need to be a lot more cognizant and mindful of the fact that you don't have it. And therefore you need to really think about who is talking about it. If, when you're referencing academic literature, you need to be thinking about who is talking about it and what they have to say about it. Amplifying their voices doesn't mean that you are silenced. It just means that you have more support. And that's one of the things I, I talked about in the panel for our conference a few years ago. It's this idea that people think that decolonizing the curriculum means you want to replace white authors with black authors. And whilst like that is on the face of it, I suppose you could make that claim. It's not so much about that. It's about making space for people of color in our curriculums and in the way that we think in order to have a well-rounded or in order to better understand the phenomenon that we're discussing. And it's only going to strengthen the research. If you present a, a white-centric, limited view of history, for example, what are you missing out? So a lot of it comes down to the point that knowledge is socially constructed. Or as Ning puts it, yeah, I mean, it's a comforting idea to, to, to think that there is such a thing as discovering knowledge, um, but I would be very skeptical of that. Um, I mean, we've moved past a lot of, like, positivist conceptions of, 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 of knowledge, right? Like, I am skeptical of the idea that we can just discover knowledge, that we, uh, we, can, we can not produce knowledge. 
um, just because everything that happens in the enterprise is value laden from the very beginning when you think about what you want to set like that's not even the beginning right the beginning is like your entire outlook <laughs> on people and on the world but let's say like when you start a research project at the start when you're defining your question you're already making judgments about what is important like what is worth asking and why uh, what counts as a question that can be answered and why you're already making those decisions and then along the way as you're like no matter you know what your sources are when you're talking to people you're making decisions about who to talk to about what parts of your conversations to um, are, are like matter um, and how to interpret what is being said to you you're making those value-laden decisions when you're looking at archival material which ones you look at who you look at how you interpret them because you know sources are ambiguous that is also value-laden you want to look at a text that somebody wrote in the 17th century in the 20th century again like which text you choose which author you choose um, what, how, why you think that's important and how you interpret them, all value-laden, and then how you write the paper, how you're framing the question, how you justify your argument, and then the conclusions you draw from it. Like, every step of this is just, that has, will always reflect where you are coming from as a scholar and as a person, right? Like, what views of the world you have. So there is, you know, like just to put it, all, all of that in very kind of, I think, very non-technical layperson terms, there is just no such thing as like some pre-existing, pre-fabricated reality that we can faithfully reproduce. Which is why you need people from a wide variety of backgrounds and with a wide range of experience to ask the right questions, as Monica explains. And I think... Uh, we've been working on looking at our curricula, looking at our reading list, but also the content, the examples, the kinds of things we engage with, and how how much they take into account the world. I mean, if you think that more or less, uh, you know, 11% of the world population is made of white people, and that's the people we talk about most and think about most and read their work most, if you were to engage with the other 89%, uh, what would happen? And I think that's kind of what we're trying to do to enrich uh, the kind of studies and the understandings we can develop in the department rather than limit them. You know? So I think the perspective is we've been just understanding the world from one viewpoint and we need to broaden that up. But if this broadening is not going to take place really slowly, one funeral at a time, does that mean some people might have to move over? I think the problem as well is when we talk about decolonization, we're touching on privilege, you know, this idea of like academic privilege and who has been the ones uh, with the microphone saying things and talking to things. So when we think of decolonization we, or decoloniality, we are also thinking about we need to make space for other voices to be heard. And making space with need 
uh, moving, you know, some people are going to have to move to make space. And that moving to make space can take many forms. It could be actually changing the institution so we can be more of us in, you know, more people in. Or if we think that the institution should stay as it is, it might mean that some people have to step off the, you know, the way or get off the way so other people have space. So I think that's where the fear comes from because you are asking people to rethink their place in academia uh, and and how they're going to make space, how they're going to move on, how they're going to actually stop talking so other people can be heard. And that's uncomfortable. And that's but that's part of the process. I asked Yingning if there could be some institutional resistance to decolonization because of what it could mean for hiring and firing. It's difficult to imagine that that's not the case, right? And Tanisha said this. I think that when it comes to hiring practices, faculty members and departments need to be very mindful of the fact that they need a more inclusive representation of people teaching students who bring with them their own experiential knowledge as well as their own like particular research that's often informed by things that they find interesting um, because of experiences that they've had and and lives that they've led I think that when it comes to hiring practices you do definitely need to be more mindful of it and thankfully there are a number of places that I've seen that are more mindful of it I mean my department in Oxford even is is very committed to this idea of of being mindful of who you're employing and having a, a range of people teaching a lot of job applications at the moment will say things like um, we particularly encourage applications from people who identify as BME and from women because they're underrepresented in our current faculty which I think is great but everyone's keen to emphasize that that's just one of many possible ways to broaden our perspective and I think that representation for representation's sake is always going to face certain troubles in this kind of decolonizing project. Ali again. You can't escape colonialism or enslavement when you're walking around Cambridge, right? So, um, you know, if I want to go to my college library, I go to the Pepys Library and get a book out of the Pepys Library. While well, Samuel Pepys had loads of investments in, in the trade of the enslaved, right? Um, if I want to see my colleagues around Christ, I'll walk past the statue of Darwin. But Darwin was one of the leading thinkers um, of biological theories of race, which were once again used to justify colonialism post-enslavement. These people aren't fully human, so we still need to colonize them, right? So there is a tension when you start talking about representation in place of systemic material change. And what should that systemic material change look like? Monica sits on the university's Legacies of Enslavement project, which researches the university's links to the slave trade and should come up with some institutional recommendations at its conclusion. So I think it's be good to keep an eye on the results of that. The challenge is going to be if we're going to own up as an institution to those results and how do we engage with those results? Because resisting them is going to bring a lot of uh, trouble but at least me as part of the advisory group, and I think we share it as a group, we're very interested in seeing this having tangible effects on our, on our everyday engagement with the institution. It could be from um, how we're going to acknowledge this publicly, you know, what sort of almost material 
consequences is going to have in the city, in the university, uh, to, to recognize this, these links that we are yet to understand and fully embrace, right? Uh, how we're going to memorialize this, uh, that's one aspect, but we also talk about redistribution or maybe, you know, um, we need to be engaging with justice in some way, you know, and those are still questions to be answered and discussed. I would also like to see, obviously, many more uh, Black people in the university in all positions. I would like us as well to contribute and collaborate with institutions in Africa and the Caribbean and Latin America, just thinking about the transatlantic slave trade, right? And I think, yeah, we're, we're talking here about a big program. I, I can imagine a big radical program of engagement with this and a, a shift, a cultural shift in the university that we understand that this is not a favor to black people, you know, that doing this work is not to say, oh, okay, we'll give you a chance. It's actually like saying you we wouldn't exist as an institution as we are now if the slave trade hadn't happened. So what's the implication of that for us? And the physical environment plays an important role in decolonization too, as Tanisha explains. Sure, yeah. You go into a, a dining hall and you look around and who do you see? I mean, my own college, Newnham, it it proud it prides itself on being inclusive and diverse and everything. But at the same time, I would walk around the halls and I would see white women. There were no women of colour. People like Diane Abbott have been at Newnham, yet she's not anywhere. Why is that? But as we've heard, decolonisation goes much further than taking a statue down or changing a painting round. And there's only so much Cambridge as a single institution can do. Cambridge isn't an independent state. It's not really an independent institution. We're part of an overall global political economy of knowledge. Within this massive political economy, Cambridge is seen as one of like the elite institutions of knowledge production, right? So quite often when we start talking about things of like decolonizing Cambridge, you can't do that by just focusing on Cambridge itself. You have to think about the wider global context within which Cambridge is positioned as being this beacon of civilization and knowledge. And that will force us to cut to questions like, why are universities in the global north ranked higher than universities in the global south? Why do people working in the global south have to engage with people working in the global north or to publish their works in the global north institutions, research centers, journal publications, university presses, in order to be recognized as academics? And that comes back to what Monica was saying about the need to foster genuinely collaborative relationships with universities across the global south. And that's an example of how decolonizing Cambridge doesn't just involve looking inwards, but it involves the ne it necessarily involves the need to look outwards and to form genuine collaborations with those outside of Cambridge as well. It is much broader than, than wanting to change the way we are taught, the way we research, the way the way we teach and it is it is it is a project of reshaping our world to change the way we think and to change the way we interact with one another and so this is kind of what i mean when i say that the move to decolonize 
is importantly and intimately connected with anti-racist politics and that it has to it has to change how we think about ourselves and about our positions in the world. I mean, you're going to get sick of me saying it's everything, but it is. Um, <laughs> is which journals are important, like because obviously um, where you publish matters a lot to how you are received as a scholar um, by your peers and people outside of academia. So having a broader view of what is worth publishing in the top journals and then having a broader view of what counts as a top journal, how we should value publication in general. And then it's also having a broader view of the, the, the global academy, that you don't have to be at places like Oxbridge, you don't have to be at places like Yale and Princeton and Harvard to matter as as a scholar that you don't have to have attended these institutions as students as a student to to matter to be able to do the work that you do so in that sense it is you know, <laughs> everything and for such a big project you're going to have to try and bring along as many people as possible the, the last thing i wanted to add was that we've talked about universalism and how like critiquing universalism is you know one of the main projects of this decoloniality or decolonizing thing that's ali again on the idea that knowledge produced through the European lens can miss a lot out and reinforce supposed divides between advanced and less advanced societies. What's the alternative to universalism? Because we don't want to go down a route of complete um, relativism, right? And I think that what we're trying to do as well is to generate this culture of pluriversality, of pluriversalism. And as Zapatistas, they put this well when they talked about wanting to create a world within which many worlds fit. We're not looking to have a kind of tyranny where like you know in the sociology department it's just me and monica making all of the calls or whatever um pluriversalism and pluriversality creating a world in which many worlds fit is really about collaborative dialogues between different epistemic traditions the thing about decolonize it's not presenting a monolith it's presenting a diverse range of voices tanisha again talking about statues spaces and institutional change so the problem that a lot of people have with these paintings and with these statues is that they're they're put in these places and they're kind of looked at and there's no kind of understanding of what that statue represents in terms of who that person was who what they did they're just there and because they're not contextualized then the history that surrounds them isn't revealed and that's a problem so decolonizing is a movement which aims to overcome racial blind spots in academic research and racial inequalities in academic institutions as well as racial inequalities globally. So how will we know when the job is done? I mean, it sounds really simplistic, but in terms of the end goal, I suppose it would be to just not have to have these conversations anymore because it's already done. It's really difficult because there's still so much work to do. And I feel like it's going to take a really long time. But I am still hopeful that one day we won't have to have these conversations in the same way that People imagine an anti-racist society as one where you don't need to talk about racism anymore. I mean, obviously, that's not the case right now, despite claims about colorblind racism and the idea that race doesn't exist, um, which was happening a lot, obviously, in the US when Obama was elected. A lot of people were like, oh, we have a black president, so racism isn't a problem anymore, when obviously it is. And the end goal for us here in Cambridge would be something like less white-centric reading lists and it being harder to write about someone like Hegel without mentioning his views on Africa. 
I think so. I mean, those are very clear indications, but I think a part of Decolonize as well is recognizing the experiences of students of color. When you get to a point where students no longer feel marginalized or othered when they walk around college because they see a more inclusive reflection of the student population and they feel more comfortable in Cambridge. They feel like they don't constantly get stopped by porters. They don't have all of these issues that Decolonize is trying to address. Then I suppose it would be then that you would recognize that it's done. So what we are fighting for here, I guess, or the struggle is uh, that everyone should be part of this institution. Everyone could could think of themselves as included, you know, as welcome or as that this place has as its center. But to start that process, we cannot just go into a blanket, let's have everyone in. We have to start by, let's put at the centers those that never have been in. And we start from there. Right? We don't start with a plain like, oh, we're all the same or a colorblind perspective like race doesn't matter, gender doesn't matter. No. We, that would be like at the horizon. Let's hope one day it doesn't matter. But for now, because it does, let's start by putting at the center of all of these uh, identities and peoples and groups that have been marginalized. That episode of Insight Cambridge is produced and edited by me, Louis Wolfe. The theme music was Good Times by Poddington Bear. And you can find more of his stuff on soundofpictures.com. You heard from Professor Saul Dubo from the History Faculty, Drs Monica Moreno-Figueroa and Ali Meji from the Sociology Department, and from Dr Tanisha Spratt, who recently completed her PhD and now researches at Oxford. You also heard from Ening Chan, who graduated this summer and is now doing her PhD at Harvard like this episode remember to give us a like and share it with your friends and let us know in the comments what we should cover next time take care and see you then